So yesterday, as you've already heard, was May 1st, also known as International Workers' Day or May Day, an annual celebration of the working classes that dates back more than 130 years to the late 19th century. Now, here in the U.S., it's it's really quite telling that we celebrate Labor Day in September, a date that's idiosyncratic to just our country instead of May 1st in solidarity with the international labor movement. It matters not only what stories we tell, but when we tell them. And if there is one figure most associated with International Workers' Day, it is, of course, the 19th century German philosopher, political theorist, and social revolutionary Karl Marx. After all, the Communist Manifesto, his 1848 pamphlet, co-authored with uh, Frederick Engels, uh, Friedrich Engels helped make famous the slogan, workers of the world, unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. Marx's hoped-for legacy is even more succinctly emblazoned on his tombstone, which distills his call to arms to five simple words, workers of all lands unite. Further on down his tombstone is another significant quote, this time from another 19th century philosopher, Ludwig Feuerbach. So if we zoom in, we see the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. And some of you may recall that last year, our International Workers' Day service focused on the work of the economist Thomas Piketty, who is appropriately French after the song that Danielle sang, who uh, he's brilliantly updating and reimagining Marx's ideas for the 21st century. <clears throat> I highly recommend his work to anyone interested. Uh, Capital and Ideology is the sequel to his earlier book, um, Capital in the 21st Century. And this year, I've been planning for us to spend a few minutes exploring, um, you know, going from Piketty last year back to Marx himself. And now that we have the perspective of looking back, you know, well more than a century after Marx's death in 1883, what are some of the good and what are some of the bad of his ideas that have and haven't changed the world? What do we know of the human Marx behind the myths, behind the voluminous writings? We're still going to uh, explore those questions, but first, I, I feel like I need to name the elephant in the room regarding labor rights at this moment. On this May Day, one story that labor rights activists hoped to be celebrating was the unionization of workers at an Amazon warehouse in Alabama. And they hoped that would be a cornerstone of a much more widespread effort. Alas, that attempt was somewhat spectacularly unsuccessful. On this May Day, not only have the workers of the world not yet united, but only half of the workers at this particular warehouse even voted. Nevertheless, this setback may provide valuable lessons for the future. And one of the reasons I'm taking time here at the top to bring this up is that although Walmart is the single largest private sector employer in the United States, Amazon is right behind them. It is our country's second largest private employer. As some labor rights observers have invited us to consider, Amazon, Google, Walmart, Target, and their like, they are this generation's Ford and General Motors and U.S. Steel. So the struggle for a living wage and for a dignified working environment at Amazon and other related corporations, it is worth our time and attention. And we need to be honest that one of the 
re main reasons this unionization effort failed is that labor right activists were fighting a tremendously uphill battle in Alabama. To quote Eric Loomis, a history professor at the University of Rhode Island who studies the history of the U.S. labor rights movement, Amazon, they, of course, pulled the same playbook that employers have been using since the 1980s. They hired an expensive anti-union law firm. They showered employees with anti-union literature. They forced their employees to sit through anti-union meetings. They bombarded them with messages about union dues. And this, all perfectly legal under the current labor law regime that is currently captured by corporations. So what is needed in the words of Marx's tombstone, not only to interpret the world, but to change it? I'll limit myself to sharing just the top, th just three top ideas from labor rights activists if we were to ever get serious as a society about leveling the playing field for workers. The first is to pass the PRO Act, protecting the right to organize, which would prevent employers from using all those tactics we just looked through uh, that would strengthen the various protections for workers seeking to support unionization. It would increase penalties from employers who retaliate against unionizers. That's part of why people didn't vote. There's a fear of retaliation. The PRO Act has passed the U.S. House of Representatives, but is currently one of many important pieces of legislation, unlikely to pass the Senate unless there is what? filibuster reform. A lot to say about all that. If any of you are close personal friends with Joe Manchin, let me know if there's some conversations that need to be had. Um, the second is a card check, uh, an alternative to holding a single high pressure vote. We don't have to do that. We don't have, just have to say there's going to be one vote at one time on one day, uh, like just happened in Alabama. A card check allows efforts to build over time and that unionization would happen at any point a majority of workers have signed cards. Finally, um, sectorial bargaining is an approach with a proven track record in many European countries, especially in Germany and France and Norway. I'll have multiple examples of this working. And it's where instead of focusing on just one company, it allows a union to legally bargain with all the major employees in a given industry by saying get 10 to 20 percent of the industry's workers to sign a card. And that would diminish the incentive of one employer to fight a union campaign out of fear of a competitive disadvantage in the industry. So, you know, those are just three uh, examples to begin to open our minds and imaginations to what might be possible. So on this Sunday closest to International Workers' Day, I offer just this brief reflection on the state of the U.S. labor rights movement, both to underscore the current anti-union bias in our system and to outline how we might commit to a more equitable future. But let's turn now to the broader picture, Marx's vision of the workers of the world united to co-create a more equitable world. As many of you know, I've been teaching an Introduction to World Religions survey course this past semester for undergraduates at Frederick Community College. And when I reflect on the influence of Marx, there are just many ways in which he helped launch a movement that functions like a religion. I mean, consider that for much of the second half of the 20th century, nearly four out of every 10 people on this planet lived under governments that considered themselves Marxists. In these countries, Marx was essentially a secular deity. His image was everywhere, reverently displayed. His words were considered, allegedly, the ultimate source of truth and authority. Now, how people interpreted those words was often quite deceptive and manipulative. 
And similar to the often violent and bloody battles over interpreting various religious scriptures, political leaders and their opponents sought to interpret Marx's writings in ways that suited their political leanings, and the fate of those who lost was often similar to that of heretics. In our own country, we could point to the ways that McCarthyism, the Vietnam War, and more were sold to the American public in part based on the threat of Marxism. And uh, so in, in a little shortly, I'll talk more about wrestling with Marx's complicated legacy. But first, I want us to spend just a little time getting to know the man behind the myths, the quest for the historical Marx, if you will, that often gets lost in power struggles over interpreting his writings. So let me share my screen with you to show you a few um, pictures as part of that. So here is um, a photo of the house where Karl Marx was born. Uh, so if you come back with me uh, a little more than two centuries to 1818, we, uh, Karl Marx is born in Trier, a city in what is today the modern state of Germany. Both sides of his family were Jewish, but were first forced to convert to Lutheranism, at least nominally. Uh, because Marx's father was a lawyer, and a few years before Marx was born, the law was changed to prevent Jews from practicing law. And here you can see one of the many, many pieces of anti-Semitism that built up over many centuries. You know, the, the Holocaust did not happen out of nowhere. This is one of the, the building blocks, but that is the topic for another day. In 1835, at the age of 17, Marx enrolled at the University of Bonn. Uh, with the intention to follow in his father's footsteps and become a lawyer, or at least that's what he told his father he wanted to do. Uh, but get this, in one of the first of many signs that Marx's life was rarely boring, during his very first year, some of you probably have stories about how your freshman year in college went, um, during his first year at university, he was not only imprisoned for public drunkenness, but also wounded in a duel. The sort of stubbornness that would lead one to go through with a duel, like we saw in the life of Hamilton as well, that would cause problems throughout Marx's life in ways that we will not fully explore, but very much was the case. He was often drawn into these protracted disputes that were just really not worth his time and energy and money that he put into them. His father, as you can guess, was not pleased with what he called his son's, quote, wild rampaging and hoped that a change of scenery would help. So in 1836, Marx agreed to transfer to the uh, kind of more conservative University of Berlin, which his father appreciated. Uh, but he also changed his area of study from law to philosophy, which his father did not appreciate. In his father's words, quote, degeneration in a learned dressing gown with uncombed hair replaced degeneration with a beer glass. That was what his father thought of philosophers. It turned out that his father's recriminations were insufficient to convince the young Marx to take his studies seriously, but when his father died two years later in 1838, Marx was forced to reckon with the reality that his father wasn't going to be able to support him financially any longer, so he needed to support himself, and he began focusing on completing his doctoral dissertation in earnest. The good news is his doctoral thesis was accepted in 1848. The bad news, as continues to be, it's like academia being a um, treacherous career track, just as true in the 19th century. He was turned down for all the university professor jobs he applied to. So instead, the intrepid young Marx became a journalist. During those early years of his career, he solidified relationships with two people who would be incredibly influential with the rest of his life. First in 1840, 
1973, he married Jenny von Westphalen, to whom he had been engaged for the previous seven years. And the next year in 1844, he met Frederick Ingalls, who had become his regular financial backer. Marx lived um, the rest of his life for the most part as an independent scholar and intellectual and activist, which meant that he was often dependent on generous friends such as Engels to make ends meet. And if you read through Marx's letters, you find there are regular laments of being able to barely afford even basic foods such as bread and potatoes. He often resorted to pawn shops and even tried at one point to become a railway clerk but was told his handwriting was too difficult to read. So he definitely knew what it was like to be poor when he was advocating for the working classes. Fast forwarding to the 1870s, uh, Marx's health began to deteriorate during the final uh, decade of his life. Uh, oh, sorry, um, skipped a slide. Uh, there was also significant um, personal loss in Marx's life that is often not well known. This photo is of Karl Marx and Engels and three of Marx's daughters. But tragically, um, Karl and Jenny's fourth child died in infancy. Their fifth child died in 1852 within a year of being born. And a third child, a son, died a few years later in 1855 at age eight of consumption. But I should hasten to add that despite these terrible losses, Marx was known to be an affectionate and caring father for their remaining three daughters, uh, Jenny and Laura and Eleanor. And in the 1850s, around the same time of these three personal tragedies, the family's financial situation finally began to improve. Marx began earning a steadier income from his writings, and Jenny was the recipient of two bequests. So if we fast forward to the 1870s, Marx's, when Marx's health began to deteriorate during the final decade of his life, the family's financial situation was much healthier. This is the house that they were living in in London. And in many ways, they had become quite bourgeois. Uh, they were, you know, as contrasted with the wage-earning proletariat class. They lived in a large house. They spent a good deal of money furnishing that house. They sent their children to a ladies' seminary. They traveled to comfortable continental spas. Marx even claimed to make money on the stock market. Now, to be clear, I don't bring this up to accuse Marx of hypocrisy. Again, rather, his hope was for a dignified standard of living to be widespread instead of deep inequality between the owners and the workers. Uh, Marx died in 1883 at the age of 64 from bronchitis. His beloved wife, Jenny, predeceased him by two years, dying after a long illness of her own. And as we prepare to wrestle just a bit further with his legacy, I do think it's fascinating that toward the end of Marx's life, as his writings were becoming increasingly well-known, he was simultaneously becoming frustrated with the people he perceived as misinterpreting him, both for and against. He was known to exclaim, all I know is that I am not a Marxist, <laughs> right? Jung said something similar. He said, thank God I am Jung and not a Jungian. Or some of you may have seen the bumper sticker, Jesus, save me from your followers, right? You're not so bad, but sometimes your followers are. In each of these cases, there's a tension between the original inspiration of a founder and the dogmatic disputes and power struggles that tend to arise among disciples that follow in their wake. It is, however, often also true that Marx himself uh, made a lot of strong predictions that did not come to pass in the manner that he anticipated. I'll limit myself to just three major examples. Let's compare what Marx said would happen with what history actually bore out. He said that while capitalists get richer, 
workers' wages will, with a few short-lived exceptions, remain at or near subsistence level. And this is really key because this was what was supposed to, you know, trigger the revolution. What actually happened is that industrialized, in industrialized countries, workers' real wages have risen far above bare subsistence. Marx said very clearly that the rate of profit will fall. What's really happened is the rates of profits, they've risen and fallen at different times and in different places for various reasons. But the long-term decline that Marx predicted has not eventuated. Finally, he said that capitalism will collapse or be overthrown because of its internal contradictions. Now, capitalism has on, undergone several crises, but has not collapsed or been overthrown in the way that Marx thought it would. And communists have taken power in less developed nations rather than in more industrialized ones. Along these lines, there's an old, though not particularly funny joke that nonetheless exemplifies the dynamics we've been tracing. It goes like this. How many Marxists does it take to change a light bulb? None. The light bulb contains the seeds of its own revolution. I know, <laughs> not that funny. As it turns out, however, changing the world, uniting the workers of the world and achieving what our UU6 principle calls the goal of world community with peace and liberty and justice for all, that's a lot more complicated, it turns out, than is fully accounted for in Marx's writings. Perhaps most egregiously, he did not anticipate the ways that cruel and corrupt authoritarians, Stalin, Mao, Kim Il-sung, Pol Pot, would commit nightmarish atrocities in Marx's name. At the same time, I mean, don't get me wrong, unrestrained capitalism has a lot of problems as well. We've talked before extensively about wealth inequality. So for now, I'll just name one among many damning statistics from today. You know, in this just this past year of pandemic alone, the world's two slightly more than 2,000 billionaires enjoyed a $4 trillion boost to their wealth, increasing their fortunes by 54%. Despite all this talk about essential workers, neither wages nor labor rights have, for the most part, increased in adequate fair compensation. So, as we near the end of this quick tour through Marx's life and legacy, there's not only much about Marx to criticize, but also many ways that he has inspired activists and continues to inspire activists to work for a freer, more liberated and equitable world. The point is, after all, not merely to interpret the world in various ways, but to change it. So to come kind of full circle to last year's International Workers' Day sermon, I'll confess for what it's worth that dipping my toe back into all these old and continuing debates about how best to interpret Marx's writings has kind of left me feeling much freer on Marx. I find that I don't really care. Like, it's just not that big a deal. I'm at least personally finding myself much less in, interested in debating Marx's 19th century writings correctly and much more interested in the work of contemporary economists such as Thomas Piketty, who are seeking to update and reimagine Marx's ideas in light of all we know now, you know, more than 100 years later in the early 21st century. Now, I should add, this book and the book that came before it are close to 2,000 pages between the two of them. So they're, they're really long. 
they're great if you want to read them, if you have the time. But the good news is at least that first book, Capital in the 21st Century, now has a film version uh, streaming on Netflix and Canopy that's less than two hours long. So if you're interested, that's probably a pretty accessible place to start. Um, so Netflix or Canopy, if you're interested, if you check them out, let me know what you think. I have read most of those two books. I have not actually watched the film. I feel like I got plenty from the film, but if you do watch the documentary, let me know what you think. For now, as we discern how we might be able to act individually and collectively in the days to come to change the world for the better, you know, to get the point, to change the world, to work for economic justice and more dignity in labor. Let's sing together that classical anthem of the labor rights movement. Note that verse four um, centers on women of the union. So anyone who identifies as a woman is invited to sing on that verse. As we sing, may you open the imagination of your mind, the compassion of your heart to what can become possible when we do join together, like those cows did and animals in Nicole's story, when we join together with ever-increasing circles of inclusion in solidarity forever. <laughs>